Hello, Billy. Hello, Dwayne. Hello, Jim. Hello, Dwayne. You ready to talk about tech and innovation? Yep. Absolutely. Welcome to Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. I am Dwayne Lester. Today's top priority is tech and innovation and was recorded on December 17, 2019. Here's who's joining this installment to discuss this priority initiative. My name is Billy Easley and I am the Senior Policy Analyst at AFPHQ working on technology issues. I'm Jim Fellinger, and I am our community's lead uh, for communications on tech and innovation. Well, I, I am curious uh, about how you got involved in this. Uh, there's a lot of things you could be working on, but tell me, how did you get involved uh, in, tech and in tech and innovation? Well, before I started working here at AFP, uh, I was a legal counsel for Senator Rand Paul, um, working on tech issues, criminal justice issues, um, and housing issues. Um, and while I was at the Senate, um, we specifically focused on mostly net neutrality and privacy issues, um, and that's really sort of where I kind of cut my teeth into the topic, um, and it was just a fascinating thing. In the Senate, we only really focused at that time and you know on very certain sort of controversial issues involving uh, tech, and here at AFP, we get to have a, a broader conversation about how technology impacts people's lives, um, both um, for um, in regards to federal issues and state issues. And I think it's fascinating. And I think it's important because it sort of sets the platform for the next 20, 30 years of, of tech policy and how it impacts people's lives for the better. So I have been uh, a member of the Stand Together community for about five years now, and I didn't work on tech issues initially. Um, in fact, I worked for a number of uh, brands in the community, uh, the now defunct Generation Opportunity, uh, Americans for Prosperity, Concerned Veterans for America, uh, Freedom Partners. I've, I've kind of run the gambit um, but what really got me interested in tech and innovation uh, was I was tasked with uh, providing communication support uh, to Trust Ventures, which is a venture capital group that is supported by our community. Um, and what I began to see when I was working with Trust Ventures um, was the very real human impact um, that technology can have, um, how it improves people's lives, how new innovative products and services um, are really able to transform society. Um, so like a lot of people, I was someone who was always very skeptical of technology. I wanted to sort of hit a hit a stopwatch on progress. And um, I felt that we had sort of gone far enough. And, and I really kind of had this doomsday scenario about where technology would lead us. Um, but as I spent more time around, um, you know, our policy folks who, who focus on tech and innovation, um, it became very clear to me that um, my slanted view wasn't necessarily correct. And um, it's been a real pleasure to work with folks like Billy and, and the rest of the tech and innovation team here at Stand Together for the last year and a half. You know, this is one of those uh, topics that when I mention it, people are sometimes surprised that we're working in this arena. So I guess my first question to you is, why are we involved in tech and innovation at all? I try to put it in simple terms, which is we recognize that technology makes people's lives better, right? That's been the historical trend for all of human history, right? From the, the time when, you know, the invention of the wheel to today where we're on the cusp of the next generation of wireless broadband deployment and how that can um, basically allow doctors to be able to do telehealth from, you know, from Chicago to rural parts of Illinois, right? Like that's the sort of fascinating um, arc of history that technology um, has, has given humanity, right? And America has been at the forefront of that for at least the last 50 years. Um, Congress made a decision um, decades ago to create a regulatory posture that allowed innovators across the country um, to um, basically um, engage into the marketplace, uh, create innovative products, compete in an environment that rewarded um, new and innovative technologies, and we saw from across the pond in Europe that they decided not to engage in that sort of regulatory posture, right? They decided to have an approach that said, hey, look, if 
you want to create a new thing, if you want to create a Google, you need to go through the regulatory hoops. You need to build your cell phone and the sort of specifications that Germany wants or Norway wants. And what happened as a result of that was that you fenced in people's innovative impulses, their ability to create new technologies. Um, so America has benefited um, from allowing innovators to right here in America and also from people coming over um, because they recognize um, our willingness to engage in new technologies and to not be afraid of um, new um, new things, um, basically. Um, and I think the, the proof is in the pudding there. If you look at the list of the most uh, successful, um, economically successful companies um, in the world, internet companies, um, more than half of them are here in the United States. Um, I believe that there's uh, the internet economy is worth more than a trillion dollars, right? Here in the United States, two point one trillion, actually. Uh, thank, thank you, James. Wow, uh, just, he's better with numbers than me. <laughs> um, and it would be it would be bad not just for businesses, uh, but it would be bad for consumers if we decided to reverse that trend um, because of uh, because of concerns. Um, that basically empowered government to sort of set the roadmap for how businesses should grow in this country. Um, and right now, I think this is why um, AFP is really involved in this, because number one, we recognize the benefits of technology to individuals. We recognize how that's created. Um, actually, that's um, in, that's grown uh, free speech a lot, uh, not just in the, in the United States, but globally, the ability to interconnect with people from different lifestyles, different worlds, right? It makes people more open to different ideas. Um, and finally, we recognize a mutually beneficial relationship that happens when you have a government that supports innovation and people who benefit from it, right? Um, we wouldn't have a Microsoft or an Apple or a Google or a Wikipedia or a Yelp Right. You wouldn't be able to go and find out the coolest restaurants that are next to you. Right. Um, if it weren't for the Internet and um, Congress's willingness to um, basically empower individuals to create companies and create new innovative products. So that's my long winded way <laughs> of saying why this is important to it. And and uh, and to put it even simply uh, to connect it to our vision, I think it's it's about openness and it's about the mutually beneficial relationship between consumers and individuals and the companies that are able to create new products. Right. And I think, you know, in, in order to sort of maintain that global dominance that Billy described, um, you know, we've ultimately determined that we need two things. Um, the first uh, is policies that encourage innovation. Um, and the second is a cultural willingness to embrace new technology. Um, that's what motivates our work is, is driving at those two things. Um, and like Billy said, we need to embrace openness um, to preserve the policy environment that allows American tech to thrive um, and contributes so much to our economic dominance globally. You know, one thing that while you were speaking, I started thinking about and, and you said that America was different than Europe. Europe put up all these barriers in America. You could just come and, and free if, if we're that free, then why are we involved in this? I mean, I guess my question is, if, is things are so good, do we even need to get involved. I think if this was in 2009 or 2010, we could have that conversation. Absolutely. Um, but in the last few years, it's been a really dispiriting sort of change in viewpoint of what techno of what the role of government should be in technological development. Um, now that hasn't been uniform, right? Um, I think one person that we have to give credit to, one agency in particular, is is the FCC. Um, Ajit Pai. And members of the of of the FCC have you know prioritized deployment of 5G, uh, which is the fifth generation of of wireless broadband uh, deployment. I mentioned that earlier. Um, that's going to drive a huge amount, not only of, of economic business in this country, um, but it's going to allow people uh, across the country to have faster wireless speeds and to basically. Um, also to make it much more likely for us to have um, autonomous self-driving vehicles in the future, right? It completely ch change um, uh, the status of our, of our current technological uh, level in this country. Um, that's great. But unfortunately, there are a lot of people in Congress um, who um, have been advocating for basically breaking up big tech, breaking up the Amazons, Facebooks, Googles of the world, 
um, in ways that don't align with free market principles at all, um, that would basically put us more in line with what Europe has done with their regulatory policies. Um, and um, I would also add that there are people who have been advocating for for privacy policies that actually go way further than necessary to defend people's privacy, right? In ways that would actually harm the ability for a company like Facebook or Amazon to serve their customers effectively. Um, so, and I just want to add a little level of, of humility to this. While I think the situation is certainly not as good as it, as it once was, there used to be a strong bipartisan viewpoint in this country that if we wanted to succeed as world leaders, we need to succeed in the technolo- technological sector. Um, and that's just not the sort of consensus uh, that it once was. Um, and look, uh, sometimes people get scared of technology. That happens, mm-hmm. right? Um, and we can have conversations. Um, in our culture about that, um, about how people can get used to the new status quo, about getting used to identifying disinformation uh, that's on their Twitter or on their Facebook. That's fine. But looking to government as the answer, asking government to say, no, create a free speech code, force Facebook to take down something that we don't like, right? That's the sort of stuff that we need to be extremely wary of and stuff that would honestly not just hurt free speech, but also hurt our ability to maintain our dominance on the world stage when it comes to to uh, technology and our dominance isn't cemented right i mean you, you think about countries like china that are willing to experiment with new technologies and and give more leeway to some of the you know albeit government sponsored companies um within their borders um it's incredibly important for us to keep a neutral regulatory environment so we can continue to develop and innovate um and stay ahead of the curve because if we don't um the world is flat others will when I think about what we're what we stand for as a, as a community, my thoughts go to a book title that I think is relevant: uh, "Permissionless Innovation." Is that is that basically what we're looking for? Is is a, a society of permissionless innovation? Yes, and I think a better way to put it is that it's about empowering people to um, be able to create whatever new thing is that comes to their mind. Right. It's not about the government saying drawing a square, right, about this is this is the environment that you can build in. This is how you can build uh, the newest technology. You need to go through us to do it. Right. It's about stepping back, recognizing that every major scientific um, uh, breakthrough that's happened has happened because um, governments have stepped back and said, hey, look, we want to empower people to uh, to innovate Um, because. People can do it better than the government can, right? Um, and that's what permissionless, permissionless innovation is all about. It's about regulatory humility, recognizing that the the government isn't going isn't best placed to determine how develop uh, technology can develop, um, and that people can instead. When you think about our network vision, and I'm sure both of you spend a great deal of your your day just pondering the network vision, like I do. First things that come up is we exist to break barriers, right? So two types of barriers, the internal, the external. When you think about the external barriers that are out there right now, are you more concerned with the external barriers that exist or the external barriers that have potential to exist? I think it's both. Okay. Um, I see a lot of external when I think of external barriers, so as I mentioned before, I worked in Congress, so I, I think sometimes a little too literally about that. I think about like, okay, what what are these crazy guys coming up with next that's going to be bad, that's mm-hmm. going to come through Capitol Hill? Um, uh, so I worry about Congress saying, looking at big companies um, that do great work, that com- that consumers actually like, like Amazon, right? I like the ability to see to order something and in two days get, you know, a new computer, right? With free shipping. That's wonderful. I worry that they look at those, that Congress looks at those types of companies and that it's just too big. We're just uncomfortable with it. We need to break it up. And that sort of regulatory barrier that says, all right, well, you, you can grow to this level of the marketplace, but no more than that. We're just going to have an arbitrary number that says you can't grow this much. Um, I think what happens as a result of that is, you'll see companies just become less efficient. 
right? Instead of being able to order something off of Amazon and get it um, in two days, maybe it takes a week. Maybe you don't get that free shipping deal. Maybe they're not able to sort of have the um, – maybe Amazon and other companies aren't able to make the sort of deals that they have with producers that allow them to have an efficient chain that you know drives down prices, right? Um, and makes those goods cheaper for consumers. That's the sort of consequences that I think a lot of politicians don't think about. And those are the sorts of regulatory barriers that I think about. And I'll, I'll add another one to this as well, um, which is um, autonomous vehicles, self-driving cars. It's terrifying. Right? Terrifying. Terrifying. I, I saw Logan, and that, that <laughs> autonomous truck almost hit him. Well, right. let's, let's consider this for a moment. Go ahead, and, and, and I don't have the number off the top of my head, but feel free at any time to look up the number of people that are killed or injured in automobile accidents every year. The number is actually pretty staggering. And when you look at the projections um, around how autonomous vehicles could um, completely prevent a, a vast majority of those deaths and injuries, um, it, it, it almost becomes a no-brainer. Yeah, so the, the question, the comparative question is, people always say like, well, look at these people who died as a result of getting struck by an autonomous vehicle, right? The, the question is how many people's lives would be saved if we were able to deploy this effectively in a way that would be safe? Um, and the answer is huge numbers of people, right? Um, and I think that's the sort of regulatory barrier that I'm thinking about as well. It's a cultural one, right? About, well, this is a new technology. Do I feel safe using this? But it's also an external one because what if Congress doesn't get this right? What if states don't create the sort of policies um, that will allow these sorts of vehicles to be deployed um, in a safe way, right, in an effective way? Um, so the, I guess the answer is both to your question. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why it's not just enough for me as a member of the policy team to review legislation and, and talk to GEDs about – issues that are happening in, in their communities are taught to state directors about um, bills that they need to lobby in support of or oppose of. It's also a cultural conversation that we need to have as a community about why we need to become more willing to engage in these sorts of technologies um, and why we need to not kind of immediately view them with suspicion. How dangerous do you think the, uh, the internal barrier of technophobia is? I think it's incredibly dangerous. Um, and I think it's also a very natural part of human nature and human history, right? Um, when you look throughout human history, uh, being an innovator was often compared to being a heretic. Think about someone like Galileo. Things didn't necessarily end well for, for folks like that. Um, but, you know, it, there are plenty of examples that you can look at, um, and some of them seem really ridiculous now, um, of instances where... Uh, humans looked at something new and said, this is going to be the downfall of society. Um, I think a good example of that uh, is something like the mirror. There was a genuine belief and concern that people spending too much time looking in mirrors would lead to excessive vanity. Um, it's hard to picture a world without mirrors now, let alone the, the camera phones that we have to look at ourselves all day. Um, so there are just, there have been countless times where we have, um, feared that which improved our lives. And I think it's very normal and natural for us to look at emerging technologies like, you know, autonomous vehicles and, and AI um, and to approach them with some skepticism. I think a healthy amount of skepticism is okay as long as we don't prevent, as long as we don't allow that skepticism to prevent us from experimenting and innovating and trying new things. The moment uh, we succumb to that fear, we are going to fall behind the rest of the world. When you, when you were speaking earlier, you mentioned... Uh... You mentioned openness, and a lot of what I'm hearing goes back to a lot of the problems we're experiencing in other priority initiatives, and that's this this protectionist mentality of of in this one it seems like it's almost we're we're protecting the way things are right now. Uh, is is it a mentality of things couldn't possibly get better, or if this happens, have they just been watching too many Terminator movies? Is that is that it? Things are obviously going to go downhill. I think there's been an unfortunate sort of erosion of American optimism, right? I think there's been, uh, in the last few years, a, a real concern about, do we really have control over, um, does America really, is America moving in the right direction on a lot of fronts? I think that's broader than a technological sort of conversation. Um, and I think what people do and when they get scared 
is that they seek a way to control things, right? Um, I think when people see that, when people see that Equifax has had a data breach and their social security number has been revealed and that they need to buy protection from that, right? I think they get concerned and they say, well, maybe the government needs to step in and, and do something about this. And I think there are times where the government does need to protect people from harms. And we could talk about those. I think there are very unique harms where um, the government does need to say, hey, look, companies, you need to do more. Um, and I actually think the government's very good at identifying specific harms that need to be protected, right? I think what the government is really bad at and what people are really bad at is saying, look, here's this whole section of the economy that I think needs to be controlled, that I think politicians need to be in charge of. And that's what we're seeing through, honestly, Senator Elizabeth Warren and also through Senator Josh Hawley, both people who are looking at the tech sector and saying these people don't care about your values. They don't care about your culture. And the only way for us to save our country is to control them instead and to break them up. That's not something that's beneficial to to people. Um, and I think it's something that um, will harm our ability to interact with each other. Um, in a beneficial way. So Facebook has gotten a lot of um, a lot of criticism in the last few years. Um, social media in general has. Um, I'm a voracious user of social media. I've also talked to a lot of these companies, and I, I don't think they're angels by any means. I think they've made some critical mistakes. Um, but I think we need to step back and realize the real benefit of companies like this, right? Um we would not be able to maintain the sorts of contacts that we do in our global society without social media, right? Um, I wouldn't be able to talk to my high school friends the way I do now. Um, uh, and I wouldn't be able to talk to friends of mine who are, you know, completely, you know, on the other side of the world uh, and to share, you know, pictures and all sorts of things with them um, like I am able to do through technology and Facebook and Twitter. Um, so I think what people need to do is take a step back say, look, let's look at the benefits and the harms, and let's have a real conversation about what needs to be done to, per to protect our privacy and our interests, um, but not simply just give up the ghosts and say, you know what, let's just have government sort of design the way that these companies need to work. That's not going to be helpful for anyone. I think Billy's absolutely right, because what he's describing is, is sort of that that top-down approach that, that never seems to work. Um, and I think you're right to point out that these companies aren't perfect, and a lot of them have made really critical mistakes. Um, but we think that the best check on the actions of these companies um, is is consumer demand, right? Um, looking to government for to serve as the solution to all of these problems is probably going to end poorly, just like it does in in most facets of life. Um, so really, I think the key is is public pressure on these companies, like you often see, to improve their practices and. I think Facebook is a good example of a company that's really beginning to respond um, to to public demands and, and really dramatically shift a lot of their policies. Are there any other um, ex or internal barriers that you think of besides technophobia? Um, is it? I mean, I mean, mainly what I'm seeing is is a fear, a fear of what's unknown, a fear of what could be. And this, like you said, this is not unusual. I, I listened to that uh, podcast. And I can't remember the, the pessimist the, archive. The pessimist Fantastic archive. Yeah, where they talked about, and they even said that this continues today. This this fear over this this rampant narcissism continues today. Only it's not with mirrors; it's with the selfie, and we've got to do something about the selfie. So is is it all just? Is it all come down to technophobia? Is that the biggest thing, or is there is there another more nefarious protectionist? We've got to destroy these uh, these new technologies to protect the old and what i'm thinking there almost you know you could say it's a form of of innovation it's definitely a form of innovation but the food trucks um not the same kind of tech that we've been talking about but you see this this innovation come in and the old guard is saying this is going to destroy us we have to turn to government to keep uh to keep us safe how much of that do we see in in tech and innovation also uh i think a great example of this going back to uh self-driving cars is um, there are multiple companies that don't want there to be a regulatory structure for self-driving cars on a national level, right? Um, a lot of companies, like uh, a lot of unions, um, 
uh, also um, the basically the what do you what do you call them? Sorry, my my uncle was one of them. I can't believe I forgot the the eighteen wheeler truck drivers. Truck, truck drivers. Um, a lot of the companies that sort of service those vehicles don't want um, uh, autonomous vehicles because they would prefer to maintain the structure that they have now, which they understand. Um, I think there are some protectionist impulses for for sure um, that um, are preventing this, but I think I think these are sort of uh, these things work together. These internal and external barriers kind of are, are self-reinforcing, right? Um, people hear from already existing companies that, hey, this is a really bad thing for you. And then people start kind of feeding into that with their own suspicions and skepticisms of this. Um, and I also think sometimes people, you know, are also kind of unwilling to listen to other people, right? If, if you're on Facebook and you're worried about how um, how your speech is is posted, right? Um, that can impact how willing uh, how willing how more willing you are to allow the government to kind of step in. Um, and I think what we have to do is we is our job, both on a policy front and as a community, to sort of remind people that um, the best possible way to deal with these questions about how free speech is going to evolve in this country, um, how we're going to deal with new technologies isn't government mandates and isn't by creating these barriers that protect existing industries, right? It's by allowing the economy to develop in its own dynamic way and allowing innovators to create new things in their own dynamic way. And the culture will uh, build around that, Um and that's worked before in this country. And I don't. I think it would be really odd and unfortunate of us to sort of step back from that. One thing that comes to mind, I'm thinking about the, the autonomous vehicles. I think there was a, a a news article just recently about a truck that made made it across the country in I think three days. It just drove nonstop. Can't remember what it was delivering. For some reason, I think it was butter. That's irrelevant. But made it three days across there hurt absolutely no one, and. But there's there's still that fear of what could have happened, and I'm reminded of of this this uh, quote from Thomas Sowell, who said, "There are no solutions; there are only trade-offs." And so when you think about the truck drivers, my brother my brother's a truck driver, and he says it'll never happen; it'll it won't happen in my lifetime. And, and I think it's happening right now. You know, the Ron Paul, it's happening. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but there will be people who will lose jobs to these things. And they they will suffer. They will hurt. There is no there is the, I don't know of a future without this change and this innovation and this churn. And you see every month a million jobs are destroyed in the United States. I, I don't know how many people know that. Every month a million jobs are destroyed, and yet a million plus are created. That's a million people who lose their job and a million plus who who find other other work. When you think about the, the next step, you know, what happens after that? If, if all those truck drivers lose their jobs and all the trucks become autonomous, what happens after that? And, and I think that may be where, where people, a lot of people, and I've been guilty of this myself, they, they just stop. They don't think past step one. They look at all these truck drivers who's, who've lost their jobs, but they don't think about all the people who are now maintaining these trucks, all the people who are programming these trucks, all the people who are building these trucks. Duane, I empathize with you because, um, like I mentioned at the outset of the podcast, um, I was one of those people who wanted to stop time and thought that automation was going to be the end of the American workforce. And if you look at the job numbers over the last year, while you correctly noted all of these jobs are disappearing, our economy appears to be growing and more people are employed than ever. And I think part of the challenge with this issue is it's very difficult to explain to people what that next opportunity will look like because that next opportunity is in the future. And the future is nearly impossible to predict. So it, it's, it's very difficult to talk to um, someone like a truck driver about this issue because you aren't able to provide that immediate solution. Well, you won't be able to drive trucks, but here's the crystal clear image of what you'll be able to do. Um, that doesn't mean new opportunities aren't going to be opening up. They will, um, but that's that's part of the real challenge here. Um, is that the, the, those changes aren't clean cut. The past is prologue. Every single time we've seen a major shift in an in industrial development from the in, industrial revolution on, um, yes, some jobs are lost, but millions of more are created. Right, 
more efficiencies are created, more opportunities are created for people. Um, and I think Jim is right. I mean, it's I understand why people would be scared and worried. I don't want to be dismissive of that, right? I mean, every every change is is you know from the status quo um, shakes things up a little bit. But we know that there are going to be new you know opportunities created in the American economy if we just let people have the opportunity to, to make those developments. Let's go back and look at uh, the, the vision once again. We've talked about the, the barriers, internal, external barriers. Let's go into the mutually reinforcing principles. We've talked a little bit about openness and mutual benefit, but what about equal rights? If we were talking about tech and innovation through the lens of equal rights, what would we be saying? I think we'd be thinking about free speech and the opportunity for, for every individual um, to express themselves openly. Um, and when you look at a lot of the top-down policies um, that are being proposed today um, around you know, mandating what you can or cannot say um, online, I think you run into an issue where um, equal rights aren't being respected. The rights of individuals to, to express themselves freely, just like any other person, um, are being held back. If you hold certain viewpoints, you can express yourself, but if you hold other viewpoints, you can't. And I think that's ultimately going to be the consequence um, of well-intentioned policies um, that stifle people's ability to speak. And I think there's a great historical example of this. Um, you think back to the FCC's Fairness Doctrine, um, which essentially stated that every um, news broadcast had to hold um, an equal amount of opinions on, on both sides of the spectrum. Um, and when that flawed doctrine was finally eliminated, uh, you, we experienced the birth of sort of uh, opinion-based news. Um, the, the ability for uh, people to, to express their views um, without having to, to balance that um, with another perspective. And I, I think that's, that's important um, because asking, asking people to, um, you know, consistently be fair is problematic because that's all in the eye of the beholder, right? So think about the presidential candidate um, from either party that you disagree with the most and think about giving that individual um, the ability to determine what is fair and what isn't. I think that's ultimately the risk that we run when we talk about implementing um, sort of a, a, a government approach to speech online. Yeah, Milton Friedman to, to that once said that if he had to choose between freedom and fairness, he'd take freedom because fairness comes with a judge. Somebody, somebody somewhere is going to have to say, this is not fair, therefore you cannot. And I think that goes to exactly what you were saying. You can't have liberty without free speech. And you can't have equal rights without free speech. Um, uh, not to not to deviate too far away from our, our conversation on this point, but um, David French at, at the National Review had a, an interview with uh, a civil rights leader um, earlier this year, where he asked him, well, "Why why do you think you were able to to change the hearts and minds of of Americans on the issues of civil rights?" And uh, the answer uh, from the civil rights leader was was twofold. He said, first of all, God, and second of all, the First Amendment. He said, the fact that we had free speech protections in this country and we had the ability to, to talk to other people and that we knew that the government couldn't censor us um, meant that we could reach people and talk to them about why this was such an important topic. Um, and think about how we talk to people today in this era. It's through technology, right? It's through Twitter. It's through Facebook. It's through organizing through the internet, Um this was one of the reasons why the Arab Spring was able to happen, right? People in other countries were able to unite in order for their to advocate for their rights and to fight for their liberties. Um, and the United States has historically been a beacon for people in the era of, of of free speech and equal rights. And we haven't always been, you know, number one on that point, but it's the principle that we've sort of been able to reflect to the world about why this is such an important issue. Um, and if we decide to have the government step in and sort of regulate these things to regulate free speech, to regulate technology. We're going to have the sort of um, fairness doctrine sort of application that we've seen fail time and time again um, and rejected by free market folks like Thomas Sowell um, previously. And it won't – we won't be a better country for it and, and the world won't be a better place for it. When I think about uh, think about equal rights in this also, I think about – the idea of permissionless innovation and the idea that you would have to get permission from the government to begin a new technology. That, 
that's not equal. That's not equal rights because the people who came before me, they didn't need permission. But suddenly, because they, you see the same thing in, in every part of, of a business where you have some who, who have the ability to put barriers in the place of those coming up behind them. Uh, you see that with, with some companies who will advocate for a minimum wage being raised because their company can afford it and they know their competitors can't. And you see companies who may support a barrier that prevents their, their competition from, from gaining. I see a lot of the same things in, in this arena too. When we put play, things in place that stifle innovation, it's often to protect those who are already here. That's an excellent point, Dwayne. And I think that's, that's one of the issues that we constantly raise when we talk about um, the importance of, of, of not overregulating the tech sector. Um, the biggest players in the tech industry right now um, have amassed a fair deal of wealth. Um, and are in a position to, you know, even if they may be difficult in the short term, deal with these kinds of regulations. Um, so if you want to cement the power of today's top firms, uh, put a series of regulations in place that only they can combat legally. Um, think about how challenging that makes it for non-incumbents to enter the market. Um, you, I mean, really, it is. It is the it is the best the best possible way to ensure that that these companies are. You know the top dogs um, for forever is, is is really through through government action. Look at the list of companies that have come out in support of new regulations um, in the tech sector. IBM, uh, Facebook has supported some uh, new privacy legislation. Um, these are all big companies. Um, they they can all handle the regulatory costs that are going to be associated with a new government regime. Uh, determining how companies can interact with the market. They, they can hire enough lawyers. They can do that. I'm, I'm not worried about Google or Amazon or Facebook. Um, the only extent to which I care about them is their ability to um, benefit people and consumers, right? Um, what I don't want them to be able to do is to use their economic and political power to support policies that ultimately hurts the next Google, the next Amazon, the next Facebook, next person who... Um, next innovator in Dallas, right, or in Austin, who says, I have a great idea. I, I just need to find an investor to support my idea. And that investor is saying, I'm sorry, but I realize that you're going to have to have, you know, 15 lawyers assigned to this one task. If, if I give you this money, it's just not a good bet for me. That's what's going to hurt this country if, if we allow um, sorts of protectionist impulses to drive our policy. And there's a tremendous amount of irony there, right? Because so many of these lawmakers that are advocating for these regulations, you know, I'll, I'll say are doing it with really kind of the best intentions, right? The the idea is they, they do want to help that 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 little guy um, bring their idea to the forefront and become the next great American tech giant. Um, but they're inadvertently really cementing the power of, of the largest firms out there today. It's almost as if government action has just a series of unintended consequences. Who would have guessed? <laughs> yeah. This is news, isn't it? We should be uh, we should be explaining this to people. I'm having a hard time with the idea of mutual benefit as it relates to technology. And let me tell you why. All of my older relatives <clears throat> refuse to use the uh, self-checkouts because it's costing people jobs. So how can technology that cost people their jobs, be mutually beneficial. I mean, I'm not even getting trained to do this. I'm doing someone else's job for free. How does that benefit me? Well, I'll go back to one of our early points and, and let Billy dive right into it. But um, I, again, I think it's, you think about those jobs that are lost at the checkouts, but you also have to think about the opportunities that are being created by technology that are helping to fill those gaps for those individuals. So if you look at it purely in terms of, will that person continue to be able to be a cashier for the remainder of their lives? Probably not. But will other opportunities open up, potentially better opportunities for those individuals? I think the answer to that is absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that's honestly, I don't think I have much more to add to that. I, I think that's I think that's the answer. Right. Um, and, and quite frankly, um, other countries are not having this sort of of viewpoint of having to uh, control for this. Like going back to China specifically is is the sort of. Um, point I always raise on this point, they're willing to have the sort of creative destruction that it takes to move their society forward, right? I mean, certainly in a less ethical way, 
the United States is. Um, and if we decide to sort of cabin off our economic growth and our technological development, um, someone else is going to to take the reins globally. Um, and I think, again, it's totally fine for people to be concerned about how we move forward in this country. But again, every single time that we've had this conversation as a country um, in, in the 1950s, um, previously before the United States was a country with, with the Industrial Revolution – um, there's always been more opportunities created than there were at the beginning of that sort of change from the status quo. Um, and I think we just have, have to have faith in people's ability and uh, the economy's ability to create new opportunities for people if we only give it the, the chance to do so. There is the uh, the seen versus the unseen. We, we, see, <clears throat> we see the change. We don't see the benefits. Uh, and maybe we see some, but we don't see all. Like we said before regarding the, the uh, automated vehicles. We'll see the truck drivers lose their jobs. What we won't see are all the people who now maintain these things. And the fact of the matter is I've had these discussions with friends of mine who who do, don't like the self-checkouts because people have lost their jobs. The fact is they didn't lose their jobs. They're still hired by the same companies. They just work in a different part of the uh, store now. People don't know that. Again, they, what they see mm-hmm. is the, the no cashier. They must have been fired. No, actually, they're doing something more productive somewhere else in the store, and they're getting paid still, and things are working out. There is that going back to Bastia, things that are seen, things that are unseen. And it's important that, that we be able to explain to someone, look, this is mutually beneficial because now this person has a better job, or now we're actually getting lower prices here, or now this is helping in this way. And, and it's important to know what the, the unseen is if we're going to explain mutual benefit. Mm-hmm. Let's touch on openness a bit. Uh, this permissionless innovation is really just saying we want an open technological sector where innovation can thrive. What else is there besides that? I, I think it's a step forward from that. Yes, number one, we want an, we want a technological sector um, without – government mandates that harm the ability of people to to basically achieve their dreams and their visions right um that's the sort of openness that we want um it doesn't doesn't mean that you know you can harm other people with your technological developments but it does mean that you should have the ability to sort of come up with your idea invest in it and see what happens and have the opportunity to fail without government intervention no recreational nukes then (laughs) That's – I'm going to cut that. That's my line, my personal <laughs> line. You know, as – I'm going to go further than that. Henceforth, a- AFP policy on the tech sector, no recreational nukes. Um, so aside from that, yeah, I, I think that's I think that's step one. Um, and I think step two of openness is not just about economic openness. It's also about recognizing the benefits of economic openness. Um, and that's free speech, right? That's the ability of people – to use technology to connect with each other um, with all the, you know, with all the benefits and negatives that come with that, right? Um, sometimes that comes with trolling, right? Sometimes that comes with people being able to connect with other people that they didn't know existed, right? And being open to hearing new things and new sides of stories that they never were able to to listen to before, Right. Um, I, I think some. I think some of the wonder and magic of that has been lost, right? Um, growing up as a kid, like the internet came up when I was really like nine years old. Um, Just stop. <laughs> but before that, like I wouldn't have had the opportunity at all to sort of have the sort of sort of connections um, that I that I do now. Um, I mean, not to not to get super personal about it, but like when I when I was growing up and wanted to become a lawyer. Um, no one in my family knew how to become a lawyer. None of them had gone to college, right? There was no sort of like, as far as I knew, there was no book I could read to, to show me how to do that. I was able to connect with people who were lawyers and ask them, you know, for advice because of the internet, right? I was able to find this community of people who were willing to help me um, figure out the sort of pathway to, to go into a, a great school because of the internet, right? That wouldn't exist if, if those sorts of connections um, weren't uh, weren't around, so I think um, I, I understand why we, we we have a little bit of a. I think we focus a lot on the economic benefits of this, 
um, and sorts of regulatory barriers. And that's all true. And and those are always the first step. But the benefits also that comes with stepping with the government stepping away and allowing people to interact and connect with each other, those sorts of benefits are limitless. I think the other end of this is um, sort of is, is like we talked about before, um, a cultural embrace of technology. So um, encouraging people to, to be open to, to new ideas, to, to, to new innovations, um, that's, that's critical for, um, for all of this to work. If, if we have a, a culture that isn't willing to embrace change, um, that's going to be reflected in the policies that we see. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, legislators are elected by people. And if, if people want to see, you know, progress halted, that's what we're going to get. That's going to be reflected in, in, in the policies that, that we have. A lot of this really leads us then to talking about self-actualization. Because <clears throat> as you were saying, I think that's a great example of self-actualization. You had a desire to become a lawyer. And without the internet, without this new technology, you could not have stri- you know, strived forward. You could not have reached what goals you were trying to reach. Maybe maybe you could have. It might have taken a little longer. It have been a little harder, yeah. But these these advancements allow for uh, an easier pathway to self-actualization because the, the less we have to worry about our more base needs, the more we can worry about, you know, reaching that, the top of that pyramid. Hey, you know, actually, I, I think this is a good way to sort of segue to uh, two of, uh, well, one of my favorite websites and then my mom's favorite website. Okay. Right? Um, uh Mine is Patreon, and and my mom's favorite is Pinterest, right? So on Patreon, so Patreon is this is this website that where basically people can it's very similar to Kickstarter sort of thing, right? You can find people who are like creating podcasts, right, or making documentaries, um, or maybe maybe they make they make art, right, and they need someone to support them. Um, so I actually. I'm on Patreon. There are people that I'm a patron to. I'd give $5, $10 to them a month, right? If, if I really like their work and they're able to like create art that I get to see or create podcasts that I get to listen to, I get a lot of enjoyment from that. Um, Pinterest is sort of the same way. My mom loves it because she loves being able to see people's recipes, right? Or buy earrings or heirlooms from this website, right? Or things you could make with uh... – <clears throat> pellets i'm not gonna say who's <laughs> got that on their pinterest page but you know but i mean the, the great thing about that is both of those websites allow people who otherwise wouldn't be able to pursue these dreams right about creating products um creating you know podcasts or or games or or art right they find an audience who's willing to help them self-actualize right who's willing to fund them to give them money because they support their passion and they enjoy seeing their passion, right? Um, you wouldn't be able to do that, you know, honestly, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. It would have been impossible. If, if you wanted to just simply start up a business on this, it would have been much harder to find an audience. And the internet sort of makes it so much easier to sort of connect with people who are willing to give people's work a chance. Um, so, yeah, I, I think technology... Uh, definitely helps people self-actualize. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, it has to become a part of our conversation that we have on this. Think about how many people have small businesses across the country that wouldn't be possible without the internet. Um, Etsy, great example. Etsy is a a perfect example of that. And I mean, Etsy, Etsy is the, is the base of many people's businesses, right? And, And you think about the opportunities that, that are created when anyone, anywhere, can connect with the entire world. It's limitless, right? And, and that just would have been unthinkable in a world without the internet. So um, it goes back to, to that, that same conversation that we've been having about um, how when opportunities dissipate, new ones appear. It would have, I mean, try to explain Etsy to someone from the 1970s. It, conceptually, it would, it would just, it would be impossible to, to draw it up. Um, and, but that's, that, that's kind of what we're talking about when we say, um, new opportunities will arise. It's not always clear what those opportunities are going to look like, but history has constantly proven us wrong. When I first started training uh, in person on, on way back when it was the framework, I don't know if you all were around for that. Oh yeah. I would get these questions and it was always, it was always uh, 
interesting for me because I would get questions. What are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about this? And what about this? And I would, I remember this once I was just getting peppered with these questions. Tell us the solution to this and tell us this. And finally, I just looked at him and I said, look, I don't have the solution for every problem you're going to give me. I don't know what the future holds. But what I do believe is that there were certain principles which made this society fantastic. And if we trust in those principles like spontaneous order, like creative destruction, like freedom, that people will come up with solutions we never even imagined. And that we just have to believe that what has worked in the past to create free and prosperous societies will work tomorrow and the day after that. And that goes to a lot of what I think you've been saying. I think that's absolutely right. It's that part of the podcast where I ask, I ask the, uh, the Rumsfeldian, uh, what is it I don't know I don't know? <laughs> is there something that, that is, uh, we need to talk about regarding this issue that we haven't covered? Or is there any way, anything that you want to bring up that we need to talk about? I think people, um, I think people have a bad habit of um, sort of looking at tech and innovation as something that doesn't really impact their life, right? I, I think when it comes to like regula- regulations or taxes um, or foreign policy, people sort of grab onto that. But tech and innovation, like, ah, what, what does that really mean? How does that really impact me? And it's it impacts every part of your day, right? Like we just the, – the life that we lead today in 2019 would be unimaginable to people in the 1970s, right? Maybe the 1980s, right? The, the leaps and bounds that we've been able to, to make um, in efficiencies and ability to connect with other people, to make it easier for people to, to find new audiences and um, try new things – that, that ability is far surpasses what was uh, available to generations before us. And I think what happens as a result of that is I think people take it for granted. So I think the, the one thing that I would kind of say to, to leave with people is the next time you hear a politician um, describe reining in technology or having the government step in um, and decide um how Facebook should determine which speech is online and which speech isn't. Um, take a step back and think about, you know, how would that impact me, right? How would that impact my ability to connect with other people? How would that impact, you know, the the next big thing that could help my family that comes out? Um, I, I think that's, I think this needs to be a more personal conversation than it is now. It's not just about some big tech companies. It's about you, right? And your ability to create a better future. Uh, along with our broader community. That's a great note to end on. Technology improves people's lives, and that's why, we, that's why we're so invested in this issue. That's, that's really at the core of it, is, is um, that human element. It's not about protecting these companies. It's not about, you know, protecting... I mean, it is about this, but it's, it's not all about protecting our, our status as, as a global tech leader. Um, it's really about the individual impact that technology has on people's lives, and that's largely positive. Thank you for listening to this installment of Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. If you have any questions regarding today's Top Priority, please email them to me at toppriority at afphq.org. We'd love to answer them in an episode of Frequently Asked, a short podcast where we answer the most frequently asked questions regarding our priority initiatives. And if there's an aspect of today's priority that you want us to discuss further, let us know that too. Until next time, I'm Dwayne Lester, and thanks again for listening.